it doesn't matter even if it sounds very simple. As long as it's words that your customers would use, that means that other customers, potentially if you've got your ideal customer profile down, that they're going to resonate with those words much more deeply than anything you can come up with based on your own ego. Learn modern marketing that you can use to grow your business in today's competitive landscape. This is Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. Welcome to season four of Digital Marketing Masters. I'm your host, Matt Rouse. And today, my guest is Patrick Ward. Patrick, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, Matt. Oh, it's going to be a great show today. I'm excited. Patrick is the VP of Marketing at Rootstrap, which is a software development agency that helps companies like Masterclass scale people, products, and processes. He's an Amazon best-selling author, accomplished public speaker, and university lecturer on AI and technology disruption. His book is Marketing Transformation, Why Your Marketing Mindset is Holding Your Organization Back, which is in the Business Leaders Edition Volume 3 of Money Matters. So, Patrick, the first thing I wanted to ask you is to tell us a little bit more about marketing transformation. So this was born or the genesis, I would say, of why this book came about was I noticed a couple of key trends in marketing and I just didn't resonate with them. One was the rise of growth hacking, where in the age of the internet, everything's measurable. And so you started getting this type of marketing where, look, can I just increase the open rate? Can I increase the conversion rate a percent? And what was being lost was something that was really good in the past, what I would call the madman era, where you did these campaigns, it wasn't really about whether it was accountable to any sort of demonstrable revenue. You just did the campaign because it influenced people and it influenced behavior. And so I was left in a situation where I saw that marketing shouldn't reject that level of accountability. But at the same time, if you go too much towards accountability in the form of growth hacking and statistics, then you're losing something inherently human to what marketing is. And I'd tried this across uh, three different companies of all different sizes, everything from you know small seed stage to you know reasonable series B, all the way up to a $300 million revenue company. And I found that I was applying the same process and getting the same success. And so what I did with this book is just outline a very clear five-step process that anyone can apply to their marketing to make sure that it still remains human at the same time that it is still accountable to executives, to board members, to CEOs, all the people that marketers have to have to speak to and, and have to get buy-in for their initiatives. Now, is it slightly ironic that you lecture about AI and try to make more human marketing? Or is that just uh, using a tool like AI, you know, deep learning and stuff to help? It's funny you say that, Matt. I, I don't see the irony in it because unlike a lot of people who focus on the, the Terminator scenario with artificial intelligence, uh, let me tell you for certain that AI is not that. It is merely augmenting what we are already doing on a, on a human level, on a one-to-one -one level, and hopefully making it scale to, to a wider audience. I can tell you for a fact that one story I always like 
is that uh, one agency I worked with, we had these artificial intelligence-driven robots. And I can tell you that they are not as smart as people fear. Uh, <laughs> we would have them rolling around the office, and when they get to the edge of a carpet, they thought they reached a cliff. So they'd spaz out and freak out. And this was only like a year ago. So AI certainly has a long way to go before it takes us over. <laughs> Yeah, I remember um, one of the guys that works for 3D VR in Oregon that I was talking with, he was worked on the team at Intel that had those little roving robots with like the iPad faces, you know, and he was talking about how fun it was to kind of drive them around. But sometimes they would become disconnected and they kind of had to find their way on their own and they would end up in a corner against a chair or something and they just like completely couldn't go anywhere after that. You know, they get stuck on the edge of a you know, a rug that has a power cord under it or something. Right. Exactly. AI is super interesting to me because you have like the deep learning kind of systems, right? So where you have an unimaginable amount of data that you need to somehow make sense out of, and it can make sense out of things that no human would be able to, because even with a team of hundreds or thousands of people, you would never be able to get through all the data in your lifetime. But also there's the natural language processing, I think is super exciting. The downside of that is something that we were just talking about, right? Is I think a lot of people are using that to write content. And there's just this, and correct me if I'm wrong, but from an SEO standpoint, since you know we're an SEO first agency when we do our marketing, there is people using AI to write content that is trying to rank and the ranking factors are determined by another AI. So we've got AIs writing content to make AIs happy. And there's no people reading any of this content. It's basically just junk being put out so that something else will detect it and think that it's not junk. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you say that because, you know, I started my career it in the SEO space actually for an insurance company and have since applied that same methodology across all different manners of companies, mainly even right now, where it's the biggest driver of my inbound strategy. And the funny thing is that I think what you say is quite accurate, where if you're looking semantically at, oh, does this rank based on this algorithm, then yes, you have AI writing for AI. But at the end of the day, why are you doing any sort of strategy, and this doesn't even apply just to SEO, but any channel you're using in marketing, you're doing it because you're trying to acquire customers and revenue. And I think that's the key thing that I found where, you know, I had to coach my own SEO strategist out of that temptation of, you know, everyone knows this adage in the SEO industry of making things go up and to the right, right? You're just looking to make graphs uh, increase and, and that have that growth velocity. And the way that I like to think about it is, no, it's more about intimately understanding what is your customer actually searching for, serving them that content. And then from there, you can start thinking about, okay, well, what's the next logical step that that customer wants to, to see? And through that, you're creating an SEO strategy that isn't so much geared towards, can I get you know, 100,000, a million, 10 million monthly visitors? but more can I get the right visitors? And I think there's certainly enough tools these days to do that, but it certainly requires a lot of education because to your point that even when you just think, oh, this AI tool is going to save me a bunch of time, maybe it helps get you started with a writing process, 
but it certainly shouldn't be the be-all and end-all. You don't want robots writing for humans because at the end of the day, that's not what gets people to buy. What gets people to buy is understanding, you know, their desires, their needs, their wants. You know, it's all very emotional. It's all very based in that irrational side of the human brain because we all know this. Like as much as standard economics has told us that every consumer is rational, we have a long history of data that proves the consumer is anything but rational. Well, I think... When it comes to certain things, there's definitely a logic kind of process going on with consumers. But for the most part, people buy with emotion and then they back it up with facts after, right? Oh, this happens all the time. Absolutely. Like you cannot, even in business decisions, everyone likes to think, oh, business is people making decisions based on hard data and evidence. No, it's this VP of marketing is trying to get a promotion to CMO and that's why they bought a particular solution. And then they'll give all of that rational justification, but it isn't the true reason they bought it in the first place. Right. My favorite analogy, and I don't remember who originally had it, but they said that, you know, the guy turns 50, which I'm turning 50 this year, so I can relate, buys the red sports car. And then brings it home and his family asks him why he bought this red sports car if he's having some kind of midlife crisis. He's like, no, it gets like 29 miles to the gallon and it'll do zero to 60 in like five seconds or whatever. Right. And he's talking about all it's got leather interior and it's got a great warranty. And but none of that mattered. Right. He went in and he saw the commercial of the the guy driving the Corvette with the young blonde girl in putting their sunglasses on in the top down by the beach. And he's like, I'm going to buy that car. <laughs> right. And, you know, it's people completely buy emotionally. Right. If they didn't, they wouldn't have all that crap at the checkout when you go to the grocery store. Uh, exactly. I think this is one of those implicit things to understand about any form of marketing is that really at its core, you are trying to shape human behavior. And there are all manners of tools you can do. But at the end of the day, it still comes back to emotional purchasing decisions are always going to be more impulsive. And they're also going to be easier to convince than a rational decision. Because humans are really hardwired not to be able to value what they're going to gain right? This happens all the time. It's like, if you tell someone, oh, you'll increase your revenue 50% by buying this tool, eh, like it doesn't hit me at my core. Whereas if you say buy our solution with an, a veil of maybe you might lose something, maybe you might lose your job, maybe you might not get your promotion, that's a lot more compelling to a person. I was working on uh, some marketing strategy with some folks today and and what we decide is we're going to add uh, a section of information kind of to their all their marketing materials, website and stuff about what would happen if you used essentially what is the cheaper version of what they offer. And this is what you're going to risk by using that cheaper version. Is it worth it to you? Right. Is the question we're posing. And you know what? For some people who are price shoppers, you know, absolutely, it's it's worth it to them, right? They don't care. But, you know, for somebody who wants a better quality product that's going to save them from that problem, they're 100% on board after you ask them that question, right? They're like, oh, well, you know, for another 20 bucks, yeah, I really would like this, you know, to not happen to me. 
this this happens all the time in our industry. So my industry of software development, most of our developers are based in Latin America. And certainly if you're going price, okay, we are cheaper than onshore United States-based developers. But if someone is shopping for price, they can go to India. And we articulate the same thing. It's like, you can go there, but don't be surprised if when you're having to have meetings at 11 o'clock at night, and then suddenly you're getting out of sync with your developers. And that out of sync suddenly affects both the feature releases and somehow you're, you know, you've, you've thought you were saving money, but you ended up spending longer. So you ended up spending more money in the overall of the project. And I think that's one of those cases where you're absolutely right. It, there's no point ignoring the fact that there are going to be more expensive options. There are always going to be cheaper options. You never want to play a price game because, you know, no one wins by doing that. Like you say, Matt, it's much more better to think about, okay, here's our position, here's our price point, what is someone getting for less? And if they're happy with that, then they're probably not a good customer for us. But if they're not happy with that less, then we're going to be the right company for them. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, was Marcus Sheridan has his book out, The Ask Method, where he talks about, in it, he talks about the pricing, where you explain what are all the different things that someone can get and what are the price ranges of those things, including yours and explain what they all are up front so that somebody can make an educated decision about what it is that they want to get. And most people, most businesses are so reluctant to put pricing, especially business to business to put any kind of pricing anywhere on the internet. Like they absolutely fear that they're going to either be undercut or somebody's gonna, you know, I don't know what they think, right? But can you imagine if it was like a consumer good that was like that, right? You know, like you went to the grocery store and you went to look to see if it has peanuts in it because you're allergic to peanuts. And they're like, this may or may not contain peanuts. Talk to a salesperson and find out more, you know? Like you would not buy that, right? So I think there's definitely value in explaining the the options and the pricing, you know, I say that and I don't have any pricing on my website either, but that's that's another story. <laughs> well, the funny thing is we face the same thing where being in custom software, it is hard to give a price for our services. Right. You're like, it's between 5000 and $500,000. <laughs> exactly. And that all depends whether they're building, you know, straight MVP, whether they're trying to build an entire app from, from scratch. The way that we got around that is we built a product which we called Discovery, which we did put a price sticker on. And we said, look, custom software is complicated. It's going to require our technical team to investigate what you're trying to accomplish. Even if you've got a current app, we're going to have to figure out, do you have any technical debt? Do you have any you know, hidden code bombs that we like to t- talk about of anything that you think it might be a simple fix, but actually it's four weeks of development to fix? But through that process, we will uncover what an appropriate quote for your for your project is going to be. But the great thing about it is we can stick with, hey, Discovery, it costs $7,000. It's a two-week sprint, and that's what the deliverable will be. So even in those industries, like you say, where it's, it's challenging to put pricing, you want to give the customer some level of assurance that, hey, I'm, I'm not just making this up as it goes along. 
I have a systematic process that I'm going to put you through in order to achieve the business outcome that you ultimately desire, which is at the end of the day, particularly in B2B, why people are coming to you. Right. And it's not going to be, it's, you don't want people to have the feeling that they have to write you a blank check. Right. And because, and when you talk about emotions, you know, being connected to purchasing decisions, the reason that they don't want to write you a blank check from their employer is they are afraid that they will lose their job. Right. Or it's not going to look good on them. It's not going to reflect on them properly. Other people aren't going to have confidence in them and their ability if they did this. So those things need to be covered, right? If you can say, look, here's the process. It's our our discovery process takes two weeks. It's, it's X dollars. And this is what you're going to get out of it. This is what information we're going to need from you. And you give that to them as a package. They can take that to their team and they can say, Here's everything we need. I've already done the research. Everything that we need is all here. And then everybody goes, oh, look at Janet. She's got her shit together, right? I think we should take her suggestion. It looks like she's done her research, right? That's the way that 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 project marketing should work, right? Oh, 100%. I mean, we did this with Masterclass to a T. So we started with Masterclass as one developer, a very experienced technical lead, and over time have grown that team to 50. That has only happened because we've been able to take key directors on their side and help them tell the story better so that they get their promotions to, you know, from manager to senior director to VPs of engineering. That is the whole reason we know that we have had, you know, at this point, I think it's three, three to four years um, of an ongoing relationship with them because we've implicitly understood, hey, this is what this client needs out of us. And as long as we can continue to deliver that for them, there's no reason to change that relationship. And that's, I think, the key that people miss is that they either think, oh, just because I've got the client, that that's the win. No, the work is only starting once you win the engagement. Then you have to continue to win that engagement. You know, that constant communication is so important. You know, when it comes to the experience that the customer is going to have, I would say most companies lose the back end on their deals because the communication breaks down after a while because they're spending all their time trying to get the next client and not communicating with the ones they already have. I had this happen to me at a previous agency where it was just myself and two sales reps, and we pushed very hard to get an account manager. And the second that account manager came on board, suddenly so many of our client engagements went way more smoothly. The second that account manager was ousted by the CEO at the time, suddenly all these communication problems started to crop up. And you just know that I understand. I've seen the financials. I get that it's hard to think, oh, well, why are we paying this account manager? All they seem to do is just be a therapist for the clients. That is one of the biggest assets that any business can have. Someone who is implicitly, you know, the best friend, the therapist of the client. You know, when when projects are going awry, you want someone there who can listen to the client, let them vent, and then get them back on track. If you have that, then the client feels heard and they're going to stick with you far longer term than if you just make them feel like they're being ignored. And then at that point, it's much easier to switch because, of course, if I'm not being heard by this agency that I'm working with or this vendor, I'm going to find another one. And that happens all the time. And it's it's not just, you know, kind of large dollar service industry stuff. That even happens with, you know, things as, as simple as, you know, like your insurance person or, you know, it could be, 
you know, like marketing agency or social media person or something like that, these kind of engagements, they usually fall apart as soon as the communication separates, you know, and especially if you're the both the service provider and the one who has to talk to the client, because then there's no separation. Right. And if you have kind of an account manager person, they can be like, you know, Mr. or Mrs. Client. I hear what you're saying. I'm on your side. I'm going to go and make sure that our team gets back on track and gets everything done and I'll get them straightened out too. And, you know, they're kind of like the, the negotiator. A hundred percent. And I think even beyond that, it's also about that leading with radical transparency. It's like, it doesn't always have to go smoothly, but it, as long as you're showing confidence in your process, I mean, this happens all the time for us in software development. Needless to say, any software project you build will have, you know, it'll have highs, it'll have lows. That, that's just the nature of the beast. And so if you can show, hey, it's okay, Mr. Client, we have seen this a thousand times. This is how this usually goes. Just giving that confidence that you've got things handled can really be beneficial in keeping that client happy and trusting you, right? It's all a foundation of trust. That always is what any business relationship is built on. And so as long as you're being transparent and communicating that effectively, I mean, again, it's surprising how few do this. They think, oh, well, we need to pretend to the client that everything is going perfectly. It's like it never will in any industry. The last thing you want as a client is thinking, what are they not telling me? Right. It always reminds me of that movie Office Space. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but the yep. like, why can't the customers just give the specs to the engineers? And he's like, well, because they're not good with customers. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, what's funny is I have an Inatech coffee mug from Office oh, Space right brilliant. now that I'm using. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get back to your book for one second, because I mean, we've kind of gone astray, but I, I still think it's brilliant and, and people are going to get a lot of value out of it. But we were talking about how, you know, kind of conversion based marketing, right? Like everything being measured and, and it's not very humanized in the marketing. If somebody's a business owner, you know, manager kind of thing, marketing manager, whatever, and they are looking at that right now and they're going, well, everything we do is to try and, you know, get half a point out of our Facebook ad or, you know, we're trying to increase our open rate by 2% or something. How, what's the first step, I guess, for them to try and kind of rehumanize their marketing a bit? Yeah, the, the way that I think about this is, is two key steps of, of my five-step process. And that's external communication is in the language of the customer and internal communication must be driving employee advocates. And so there's a reason behind each of these. The first is the reason that most companies end up writing very egotistically is because it's a natural tendency. When you're inside your company, you're in an echo chamber that is focused on how you talk about yourself. But the only reason a customer buys is because of what they perceive about your company. And so the quickest strategy I have here is go to your best clients, find any sort of form of testimonial that you have from them or at least interview them, you know, take 15 minutes out of their day. You know, if they're a good client of yours and they're happy with you, they should be happy to do this for you. And just note the words that they use. Use those words as you start to see the themes across multiple of your customers 
and embed that into all of your communication. It doesn't matter even if it sounds very simple, as long as it's words that your customers would use, that means that other customers, potentially if you've got your ideal customer profile down, that they're going to resonate with those words much more deeply than anything you can come up with based on your own ego. And then the reason that you want internal communication to be driving employee advocates is, let's be honest, unless you're Nike or Apple or Pepsi or any one of these big brands that have massive marketing budgets, most companies don't have a brand. And this is something that a lot of marketers, you know, they, they love talking about the importance of branding, but let's be honest, I'll be the first marketer to say that it's really not the case because brand to me is synonymous with reputation. If I look up any company and I include this about my own company, we don't have a brand. We're on the track to getting a brand, but we're not there yet. And so the better way to go about it is using your people first, right? And that's why you want all of your communication inside your company to be focused on how do you make more of your employees proud to tell the story of your company? And that comes back to something as simple as drafting three social media posts for them and they can use that as a starting point for something they want to share rather than just say, here's a message, share it. You know, Let them put it into their own words because once you start doing that, then you get a real multiplier effect. Most marketing teams, especially in the B2B world, are quite small. Even my team, which has grown significantly, is still only at 10 people. When you compare that to the entire company that I run at the moment of 220 That's 220 people's networks that we could be tapping into to expand our reach. And I think that's a key point is that too many companies are quick to say, oh, well, here's our brand. Let's just articulate everything based on a corporate persona. And unless you do have the budget dollars that can get there, and we're talking millions, if not billions, you much better start with the people first and that will build your brand's you know, mind share in the overall ecosystem, then you can start really honing in on, okay, well, now we have a, a corporate brand that actually means something in the marketplace because enough people know about us. Now we can start doing some of those more exploratory brand building budgets. Absolutely. And you can also build brand kind of within you know your small niche kind of thing, right? If you think about it like, you know, I I like role playing games like Dungeons and Dragons and stuff like that, right? I know who TSR is and I know who Wizards of the Coast are, right? They have a brand; it's recognizable to me and anybody in the gaming world, right? But somebody who's maybe into model trains or something and not those, they those are meaningless brands to them, right? So you can be, you know, the big fish in the small pond when it comes to branding as well. You definitely can be the big fish. I think the, the reason why I, I stress that is that companies think they're that before they're even that. And I think that's where it comes back to, okay, look at your ideal customers. How many of them know that you exist? And that's really where you need to start dialing in on, you know, we can't just arbitrarily say that, oh, anything that we do that is not measured is brand. That's a fault on bad marketers, I would say, that we've 
split up the two distinctions in our pods between demand, which is obviously directly attributable. That's kind of what I was mentioning before about growth hacking. And then brand is this catch-all term used for anything that can't be measured. And that's just not the case. You want to make sure that brand is tied or that brand initiative is tied towards something demonstrable. Like you say, if you can prove, hey, now we have a reputation within this small niche, that's a brand within a certain community. But you need to prove that that's been the case, not that, oh, I just threw this event because I wanted to and I justified it to my CEO by saying, oh, it's a brand play. Right. I'm building brand. Yeah, we need to get away from that as marketers. We we want to be accountable, but we also need to make sure that we're not misguided by by the data. And there's lots of it right now. Absolutely. We're drowning in data and, you know, starving for any kind of way to articulate most of what's in that data. Patrick, marketing transformation, why your marketing mindset is holding your organization back. And it's in the Business Leaders Edition, Volume 3 of the Amazon bestselling series, Money Matters. If somebody wants to reach out to you, aside from getting your book, what's the best way for them to do that? Best way is LinkedIn. So linkedin.com slash IN slash Patrick James Ward. Perfect. And thanks so much, Patrick, for being on the show today. Thanks, Matt. This has been Digital Marketing Masters with Matt and Carrie Rouse. For notes and a transcript of this episode, go to hookseo.com forward slash podcast. Join us next week as we dive into more tips and ideas to grow your business. Digital Marketing Masters is brought to you by Hook SEO Digital Marketing. Our show is produced by Matthew Rouse and Scott Burson. Mixed and edited by Silent Outburst Productions. I'm your announcer, Daniel D. Craig. We would love to hear your thoughts. Please leave us an honest review with your podcast provider. Your reviews help us help more business leaders just like you.